Today is Sunday, November 6, 2022. Do you suffer from gear acquisition syndrome? I know I do. Buckle your seatbelts and welcome to this edition of the Electric Guitar Lives podcast with Pete Williams. A fun and pithy celebration of the electric guitar, guitarists, related gear, and industry news from a seasoned guitar pro. Get your daily dose of all things guitar from an industry insider with over 20 years in the proverbial trenches. Be regaled with sordid tales of guitar and guitar news, amps, effects, artists, moodiers, and the interesting people that make up this wacky machine. So wind down with us as we cap each week off with a fresh out of the oven episode. Who knows what will happen? Maybe you'll laugh, maybe you'll cry. You might even learn something. Yeah, maybe you won't. But one thing's for sure, you'll be entertained. So hang with us for a bit, and thank you for joining us on the Electric Guitar Lives Podcast. Now here's your host, Pete Williams. Hey folks, how you doing today? Did you have a good week? I hope so. Appreciate you tuning in to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. I'm your host, Pete Williams. We're going to jump right into the news. In our first bit of news, Reverb has revealed the best-selling guitars of 2022. I love these lists because it helps, um, you know, give you a basic approximation of, uh, of uh, what's selling well out there. A quote from their article, note, all rankings are determined by total order count. That is, the actual number of items sold, not the total price of sold items. Releases that were exclusive to Reverb are not reflected in these rankings. And because Reverb is home to individual sellers, independent brick and mortars, and makers alike, our rankings include all sales, whether brand new or used. I think that's fair. Now, something I um, caught in a previous podcast that I knew was uh, a disruptor in the industry uh, and is number one on this list is the uh, PRSSE Silver Sky. Right after that, in the number two and the number three spots are the Fender Player Stratocaster and the Fender American Professional II Stratocaster. In the fourth spot is the PRS Silver Sky John Mayer Signature, the uh, the USA version of the Silver Sky. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with John Mayer, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better spokesperson um, for the brand. Um, he's an amazing musician, singer, songwriter. Obviously, his his um, you know he has the ability to um, attract a lot of different types of fans. And um, underneath it all, he's a big guitar geek and um, uh, an amazing blues guitar player. He's just an amazing guitar player in general. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Right after the uh, USA Silver Sky is the Fender Player Telecaster, which I believe new is going for uh, about $700. I could be wrong there. Uh, I picked up a couple and played them, and uh, of course, they're very nice. I mean, for the money, man, everyone has to have a tele in their collection. Now, of course, you can go to Reverb.com and check out the uh, the rest of the list yourself. Uh, I'm only going to comment on a couple of more 
uh, items on this list. The one that stuck out with me the most is the one that I just uh, purchased myself a few weeks back, which is the uh, ESP LTD EC1000. Under that wing of ESP, you know, they're able to uh, put a single cutaway out into the marketplace um, that, you know, for an import guitar, they give you so many features and the craftsmanship on these things is so nice. Um, it's no surprise that they're in the middle of the list here. Be sure to head over to Reverb.com and uh, check out the, uh, the full article and the full list. Um, some of these items that are on here are no surprise. I mean, you know, they're, they're fantastic instruments, so they should be in the top list. Now here's a message from our sponsor, Making Music. Hey folks, did you know that Making Music is the number one dealer for custom Fender guitars in the world? That's a big deal. Making Music has been the original home of tone since 1973, and for over 40 years we've been committed to meeting the needs of our customers. Actually, almost 50 years. Making Music offers a hand-picked selection of premium boutique and custom gear. Our Northfield, Illinois showroom is open and comfortable with private, soundproof demonstration rooms for a pleasant shopping environment, while our website is regularly updated with an incredible array of custom electric guitars, tube amplifiers, and effects pedals. Knowledgeable and courteous sales professionals are always available to help make sure the gear you want is the best choice to suit your needs. Whether you're looking to pick up a new hobby, push sonic boundaries, or simply to tweak your tone, making music is the place. So in other news, a guitar that Kurt Cobain smashed on the stage could fetch $400,000 at auction, according to robreport.com. You get a chance to bid on rock and roll memorabilia that includes items from John Lennon, Neil Young, and more. The article goes on. You can own one of Kurt Cobain's old guitars, but don't expect to strum any power chords on it. One of Nirvana's or Nirvana frontman smashed axes while headlining the Icons and Idols rock and roll auction from Julian's Auctions kicking off on November 11th. In total, more than 1,500 pieces of rock and roll memorabilia will be offered by the auction house, but the Cobain guitar is one of the more show-stopping pieces available. The 1973 Fender Mustang was played, smashed, and signed by the Nirvana frontman in 1989. On tour for the band's first album, Bleach, Nirvana played small venues around the country. At the Sonic Temple in Wilkinsburg, PA, Cobain wrecked a guitar during a performance of Blue on July 9th of that year. Following the show, Cobain traded the guitar to Sluggo Cawley of the band Hullabaloo. Before passing it off, he inscribed it with, Yo Sluggo, thanks for the trade. If it's illegal to rock and roll, then throw my ass in jail, Nirvana. Now taped back together, the guitar is expected to hammer down anywhere from $200,000 to $400,000. Alongside that piece of Cobain's paraphernalia, Julian's has a whole host of items that take pride of place in rock and roll history. 
a pair of John Lennon's signature wire rim glasses, often called his granny glasses, are expected to fetch $60,000 to $80,000. The specific pair on the auction block had been photo-matched to the late Beatle and serve as an endearing reminder of his signature style. Pretty cool. Be sure to head over to robreport.com and you can get the skinny on that. You might want to bookmark when this auction kicks into high gear because there's going to be some pretty amazing stuff there. Um, you can read the rest of the article yourself. In other news, YouTube's automated copyright tool riles up musicians. This article comes from marketplace.org. Uh, written by Peter uh, Balanon Rosen, and I quote, When Rob Jones uploaded a video to YouTube in which he plays a few Nirvana riffs on a guitar, his video was flagged for violating the site's copyright rules. Literally playing riffs, yeah, John said, Jones said, excuse me, I could play 10 seconds, I could play 30 seconds, not even with any background music, just a guitar on its own. Jones runs a YouTube channel called The Guitar Manifesto, where he reviews and builds guitars and often demos famous riffs. He's one of, my, he's one of many guitar channel owners who say that in recent years, YouTube, a Google property, has flagged a slew of their videos on behalf of major labels, even though they're playing the riffs themselves. This is possible because of Content ID, a powerful automated tool created by Google that checks uploaded videos for copyrighted material. Content ID creates digital fingerprints for copyright owners. Works, then scans the platform to determine when content in an uploaded video matches. When Content ID flags an infringing video, copyright holders have choices. Do nothing, take a video down, or divert the revenue it generates to themselves. But that system has led two groups of musicians to clash with YouTube. On one hand, there are YouTubers like Jones, who create content to teach people how to build and play musical instruments. On the other, some independent musicians say Content ID doesn't go far enough to address copyright infringement. Jones has over 20,000 followers and makes money from his channel. But when YouTube system flags one of his videos, copyright holders, generally record labels, can divert the revenue it generates to themselves, meaning Jones earns nothing. I did a bass guitar review and I played Africa by Toto, Jones said, humming the song's opening riff, and the video got demonetized. Content ID doesn't flag every check out this riff video, and there are plenty online. But in 2021 alone, YouTube processed 1.5 billion Content ID claims. Content ID is incredibly powerful, said Ryan Bosak, founder of Superbam, a company that helps clients find and monetize their copyrighted material on YouTube using Content ID. It can run around YouTube and claim a whole bunch of stuff real quick. I'm talking within seconds. Bosag said Content ID helps copyright owners reclaim what's rightfully theirs. Last year, YouTube paid $2 billion in ad revenue to rights holders from content claim and monetized through the system. Content ID has created an entirely new revenue stream for rights holders, according to a YouTube report. You're talking a whole lot of money, Bosak said. It's a big business. It's 
a meaningful business. Now, the automated system has come under fire for inappropriately flagging birds singing in the background of videos and loops of cat of a cat purring. A few years back, a news channel uploaded a recording of a NASA mission, which generated claims against other channels, including NASA itself. But Bozak said content ID is important. There's thousands of videos uploaded to YouTube every minute, right? A lot of those pieces of content contain some level of content piracy, Bosak said. But who actually has access to content ID? Not everyone. Now I'm going to stop there. Be sure to head over to marketplace.org. If you're a content creator and you're on YouTube, uh, you might want to check this one out. Or if you're wondering why you're not making as much as you could be, it might be due to uh, this uh, content ID. In our uh, gear spotlight section, I wanted to um, basically point out a company that uh, I've um, taken notice of. And that company is uh, Rainsong Guitars. They make uh, carbon fiber acoustics. Now, a few companies have attempted to do this over the years, and there's currently a few companies out that are doing this. Uh, I just happen to think that Rainsong is doing it better. This is a quote from the uh, company website. Rainsong Guitars, born in the tropics. The story begins one rainy afternoon on the island of Maui. Plasma physicist Dr. John Decker was attending an outdoor wedding when a tropical shower threatened to drench the party, including the solo guitarist. A classical guitarist himself, John felt the player's dilemma. Should he run for cover and risk the wrath of a bride's family, or play in the rain and ruin his guitar? If only there was a guitar that would play beautifully while enduring life's summers and winters, bumps and bruises, and even the occasional downpour from the tropics to the poles. John knew he could make one, and that's exactly what he did. The resulting instrument was the world's first all-graphite acoustic guitar, and it was the first major advance in guitar making since the Italian masters perfected the wood instrument nearly 400 years ago. After 400 years, a rainstorm in Maui was all it took to change the guitar world. That was the moment that Rainsong was born. Now, I was just talking with a friend of mine earlier this week, and uh, he was telling me that he had been outside playing his, uh, his standard acoustic guitar, and that, um, well, let me just preface this. You know, we're in Florida, so our weather uh, pretty much stays the same year-round. I mean, you can count on it being sticky and hot, uh, humidity at full force most times of the day, most times of the year. Obviously, this is not a good thing for a an electric or an electric guitar or an acoustic guitar, for that matter. I got to try the Rain Song, um, and you'll have to forgive me. I forget the model, but I got to try one uh, at a dealer near uh, Tavares, Florida, and uh, man, I was just blown away. Um, by the quality and the intention of it. Because if you think about the intention of it, you know, guitar, guitars, excuse me, uh, predominantly are made of wood. Duh. Right? Um, however, this isn't necessarily the most sustainable thing um, in, you know, guitar manufacturing. Um, wood doesn't come uh, in a never-ending supply. 
But, you know, also another way of looking at it, too, is it are you a person that's on the go? I know a few people um, that are constantly on the go. You know, they're camping or they're traveling around the country, traveling around the, you know, the state that they're in. Maybe they're playing out live or they're just going to events or they're playing gigs or whatever the case may be. Um, You know, you don't want to... um, subject your your prized acoustic guitar to the elements uh, it's not really good for it now you know willie nelson might disagree but you know he's his own unique character and his trigger guitar is its own unique thing i just was really tickled um, by the the um, the innovation of this particular guitar uh, manufacturer and i feel it was worth talking about in the podcast today if you get a chance, please head over to rainsong.com and um, and check out their wares. Uh, these are amazing instruments, and uh, they're crafted at the you know with the highest standards. Um, if you make an investment in one of these guitars, uh, you're making an investment in an instrument that's you know basically built to last a lifetime or two. Check them out, Rainsong. We're going to uh, continue, or I'm going to continue, with the um, Dean Guitar Saga. So in my last podcast, I talked about, um, you know, those early days of, uh, of Armadillo Enterprises, uh, back when they were in Clearwater, Florida, and uh, they were launching, uh, or reintroducing the world to uh, Dean Guitars. They had brought Dean Zelensky back. And a lot of moving pieces and components were happening kind of all at the same time. Now, when Dean came back, um, you know, I, I believe behind the scenes, the bigger picture thing that was happening was, um, you know, Dean was brought back for, for a reason to help reestablish Dean Guitars as a presence out there in the guitar market. Um, but under the hood, I believe... You know, the end game was to ultimately try to get back one of the uh, most celebrated guitar players of the last 40 years. And that guitar player was Dimebag, the late Dimebag Daryl of Pantera. And what I mean by under the hood was I, I believe that there was a plan to ultimately get him back. There was a lot of different plans going on with Armadillo, but that was one of the big plans uh, was to try to get him back. Uh, under the armadillo wing now of course um, you know dean worked his mojo and was able to get him to to come to armadillo and and join forces again with dean guitars and um, you know i won't lie man it was a really really cool time it was very exciting 
until his, you know, um, the tragedy um, that took him away. Now, I won't get into that. Uh, if you want to read about Dime, you can get online and and uh, get the scoop on, on him. Um, amazing guitar player. Um, after his passing, though, the tone at Armadillo Enterprises changed. It wasn't overnight. It was a kind of a gradual thing. And not necessarily for me, um, but for Dean Zelensky. Um, Dean, um, you know, some might say he was, uh, or he is uh, an eccentric type, but as he would say, the best ones are um, kind of quirky. Um, and some folks there had a difficult time working with him. Um, again, like I said in my last podcast, it wasn't just Dean. They had a difficult time working with me, too, uh, because they didn't like third-party folks um, telling them there might be a better way to approach things. Mix that in with the uh, testosterone and macho-ness and all the other ego stuff that comes in this industry uh, that's a part of this industry, and you can kind of see what I mean. I'm telling you from firsthand experience that working with Dean um, was actually a joy. I mean, he's a fun guy to work with. Uh, We would talk often, uh, probably talk daily most of the times on things we were working on and, and the efforts. Uh, but the attitude at Armadillo Enterprises towards Dean, um, in my opinion, I felt started to deteriorate. Now, they never expressed that to me, um, but they were certainly expressing it to Dean um, through their uh, you know, treatment of him. After Dime um, left us, uh, business exploded for Dean Guitars, uh, and I'm talking exponentially. I believe they sold uh, uh, 100,000 Dean Razorbacks that year. Just to give you an example, um, during this time, uh, and because of you know the amount of you know feedback coming from the world in reference to um, the presence that we had out there in the marketing machine that I had talked about previously. You had a lot of people coming out of the woodwork. Everyone wanted to come and work for Armadillo. They wanted to come work at Dean Guitars. Uh, and the, uh, the growing new brands that they had incorporated or put into place at that time, which was um, Nord, D-Drum, and Luna Guitars, which were all piggybacked off of the success of Dean Guitars. So this period from 2004 to 2007 uh, for Armadillo was an explosive period of growth. And one could correlate it all back to the wild success of Dean Guitars at that time. Now things were humming along. Um, Honestly, it was a great time, probably one of my favorite times during my career working for a company. Um, they were one of my bigger customers at the time, and uh, um, uh, you know I'll be the first to admit it was probably one of my favorite periods because things, you know, when things are going really well, you you know you don't uh, expect a lot of hiccups because we had put this stuff together and uh, executed right, and um, you know things were things were going well until one day I get a phone call. 
the operations manager at that time gave me a call and told me that uh, Armadillo Enterprises um, and Dean Zelensky were parting ways. Um, it during that period, uh, it really kind of blew me away. I, I was shell shocked by it. Uh, the person that I worked with every day was Dean himself. You know, we basically ran the entire marketing for Armadillo during that time. Uh, so to get a phone call like that out of the blue. Um, was really jarring and upsetting. I'm not going to uh, go into the amount of work um, that was done to help Armadillo Enterprises achieve the level of, of success that they did during that time, um, but it was a lot, a ton, um, through just a handful of folks. And uh, Dean was part of that, and myself, and, uh, and a couple of other people. Um, so for them to make that decision again, for me personally, at that point in my career, was a real gut punch, to say the least. You know, my question in my head, that I was thinking at the time, was, why would you break up the team responsible for the company's success? Why would you um, sever ties uh, with the gentleman whose name is on the headstock of the instrument for that brand um, and who is celebrated and loved by his fans? It just didn't make any sense. Now, I'm not going to get into um, um, what happened for a few years after that. I will get into what happened a few months after that because I remained with Armadillo about two and a half, three months after that, um, helping them put together a um, an idea called the Guitar Shredder Search. If you're a guitar player, this was my brainchild that I helped them put together, um, and it was a big contest. Um, the difference, though, when this thing had gotten put out, uh, was that Dean Zelensky wasn't involved, um, and. The picture that was painted for me at that time was clear, and uh, that picture was, you need to leave Armadillo Enterprises. But we're not going to talk about that today. We'll get into that uh, in the next episode of the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. Now, here's a message from our sponsor, Making Music. Hey, folks. We have a promo going on between now and Friday, December 2nd. Our generous sponsor, Making Music, is offering up not one, but two chances to win two boutique guitar effects pedals from One Control by Bjorn Jewel. All you have to do is subscribe to our email list and listen to the podcast between now and Friday, December 2nd, 2022, for the winning announcements. Two lucky listeners will get a chance to own A, fluorescent orange overdrive, and B, Baltic blue fuzz pedal from One Control guitar effects. To enter, please visit electricguitarlives.com and click the One Control Guitar Effects Giveaway link. Real simple guys, just subscribe to the email list, check out the uh, the demo videos, and listen to the podcast. We're going to be announcing those winners, uh, some two of winners basically, uh, sometime between now and December 2nd. So uh, be sure to tune in and listen to that and get a chance to uh, 
to own an amazing uh, boutique guitar effects pedal from One Control. So in this week's uh, Artist Spotlight segment, we're going to talk about the great Yngwie Malmsteen. Um, rather than go into, you know, his biography and all that, I mean, I would hope by now if you're a guitarist or maybe if you're a new guitar player, you don't know about him. If, you, if you're not sure uh, who Yngwie is or you've never heard of him, uh, you know, check out his website at yngwiemalmsteen.com. Uh, I've been a fan of Yngwie since back in the day. I remember hearing, uh, I believe he had, it was Black Star that was on a, a little one of those little uh, floppy records that was on in an insert inside of Guitar World magazine or Guitar Player. Maybe it was Guitar World. Don't remember. Anyhow, what I do remember is listening to Black Star a million times and being blown away. I know a lot of people at that time at that point in time when he came on the scene um, we're into Eddie Van Halen I always felt like when Ingve came along um, that I mean, he was just so radically different from everyone else uh, outside of Eddie Van Halen uh, that it, it really made me pay attention and, pay, and take notice and also really encouraged me because you know I had taken classical guitar uh, at that time um, you know, he, he was someone I, you know, I, I felt his style spoke to me. So I was a huge fan. This week, what I thought would be cool is uh, we do uh, 10 cool facts about Ingve Malmsteen that perhaps you didn't know. Uh, so we'll start off with uh, the number one. Now, these aren't in any particular order. Um, I just find that they're interesting facts, okay? Ingve's real name, this is number one, is Lars Johan Ingve Lannerbach. So his real name is Lars. That's interesting. Um, number two, Ingve could play any guitar in the world, this is true, an understatement, but has stuck with the timeless Fender Stratocaster for almost his entire career. Uh, a class act move, in my humble opinion. I I feel a lot of this was due to his um, him being a fan of uh, of uh, Jimi Hendrix, and he really liked the showmanship that Jimi had, and Ingve uh, wanted to incorporate that into his style of playing. Now, as I talked about in my last episode, I don't think it was just Hendrix. I feel that. Uh, Ingve was also heavily influenced by uh, Yuli John Roth, and Yuli used to play before he did his sky guitar stuff. Uh, he was also a huge Hendrix fan, um, and uh, played a cream-colored Stratocaster, which I feel had a big influence on Ingve. Um, it's just uh, as far as documentation online, you won't hear from him, or at least I haven't seen it, where he says, "Oh, I was influenced by Yuli John Roth," but I, I suspect that was it. Anyhow. Regardless of that, he's stuck with Fender all these years. And, you know, if you think about Ingve and uh, the type of stuff that he plays, man, he could have played anything. Um, so the fact that Fender has stuck by him and he's stuck with Fender, I, you know, I, I love that loyalty stuff. So um, pretty cool. Number three, Time Magazine listed him in the top 10 greatest electric guitar players of all time. The top 10 from Time Magazine. That's a big deal. Um, I agree with that assessment. Uh, number four, 
Uh, Yngwie was discovered by Shrapnel Records mogul and guitar industry pioneer Mike Varney. Um, really cool. So, you know, who else was under that? Uh, Vinny Moore, Paul Gilbert, Racer X, right? Um, Tony McAlpine, uh, Yngwie, all those guitar heroes from that era. Um, you know, Mike Varney had a hand in finding these guys. Uh, shrapnel records who are still in business today you know be sure to check them out they have a new lineup of guys that uh, that that have albums out that are you know like johnny highland really really cool players might want to check that label out number five he's released 22 studio albums over 40 years that's quite the accomplishment okay um number six Ingve is a Ferrari enthusiast, and he owns five of them, all of which are red. That's pretty cool. Number seven, he calls Miami, Florida home, and even wrote a song about it called Magic City. Magic City, for those that don't know, is a, another name for Miami. Ingve uh, moved there, from what I read, um, after he didn't really jive with what was going on in California, probably the earthquakes. And uh, he didn't like it in the city up in New York, so um, he felt that uh, Miami's a better place to call home. He probably has a couple of homes, but uh, it's cool. Uh, at least I know here in Florida, on the ground level, uh, he has a huge following. Every Yngwie show that I've gone to is always sold out, and the fans love him, myself included. Number nine. He's also known as Lars Y. Loudamp, which I've never heard before, and Ingve J. Malmstein, which I have heard. Not to be confused with all the other Ingve Malmsteins of the world. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, number 10, and the last one. Um, while growing up, he was heavily influenced by classical music, particularly 19th century Italian virtuoso violinist and composer Niccolo Paganini, as well as Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, obviously, you can listen to Yngwie's music and hear those influences. He's built his whole career around those influences and brought that to the electric guitar and has wowed fans ever since um, you know he came onto the scene. Pretty cool list. Uh, you could easily make a list of 50 or 100 things that were cool about Yngwie. Um, if you're not a fan of his um, or you haven't really listened to Yngwie before, I highly recommend that you check out the um, Steeler record from Shrapnel Records, uh, which features Yngwie's playing. And most notably, I highly recommend that you check out um, his work that he had done with Alcatraz and Graham Bonnet. I feel that stuff that he did with them was pioneering um, and amazing. Um, there's some live YouTube stuff of Yngwie playing, and I feel like he was a lot more freeform there and incorporated a lot more blues into his playing, uh, and I feel like that was some of his best playing. But, but there's a live marching out video somewhere where he's with the Johansson brothers um, and it's got Jeff Scott Soto uh, video. I used to have it, but um, lost it somewhere, probably traveling around over the years. Um, but this is some incredible playing from Ingve, and I feel that was a really cool time to be a fan of his. If you happen to uh, get on YouTube and you can find a video of him playing uh, during that period, definitely worth checking out. You know, his Rising Force stuff. Um, amazing, amazing work. 
Uh, Ingve is going to keep rocking on. Uh, so if he's on tour and you haven't seen him, uh, be sure to check him out. Do yourself a favor. You'll have fun that evening. Trust me. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. I'm your host, Pete Williams. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to listen to the show. Uh, I appreciate you guys signing up for the uh, the contest. Um, I wanted to point out uh, one of the recordings I did on this podcast. Um, I got some assistance from Mr. Jim Dooley, who's a drummer and has, uh, some of you might know him, from creating a, a whole series of great uh, live drum backing tracks and uh, that he's got online. I encourage you, if you're recording music, if you wanted to jam out with something, uh, Jim Dooley's definitely somebody to check out. You can, you can visit his website at jimdooley.net. Also, I have a link to his website um, in the liner notes of this podcast. But thanks again. Um, you know, have a great week. I hope you're, you're practicing, playing guitar, and having fun. If you're not, you need to start playing again. You know, just takes uh, 30 minutes out of the day, man. Have some fun. Unwind. It's a, it's a nice way to detach from the daily grind. Um, anyhow, so next week, uh, I'm excited about this particular episode because I'm going to be talking about the Renaissance man of the electric guitar world, um, out there rocking around and, and he's also an accomplished jazz musician as well. And that's Alex Skolnick of Testament and, uh, the Alex Skolnick group. So, uh, be sure to tune in next week. We're going to be talking about Alex. I'm a huge fan. I've been a fan of his since back in the day. Um, we're also going to be uh, exploring more about the uh, the Dean Guitar Saga for those that are interested and wanting to get the inside scoop um, from someone who is there at the ground level. Uh, anyhow, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast with Pete Williams, your weekly hang for all things guitar-related and more. Be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode. And remember, have fun. See you next time. For more about this podcast and future episodes, be sure to visit electricguitarlives.com. Thanks again for listening.